we're trekking through the Psalms, and tonight we find ourselves in Psalm 4. There, there, are, some, uh, there are some crossovers between Psalm 3, where we were last week, and Psalm 4 covers some similar territory, uh, and there's probably, they're not probably is a reason, there is a reason for that, but it is a, it, it's a, it's a psalm that speaks to a common occurrence uh, in the life of a believer. At this moment, if I had to give a title, uh, I would give this title for Psalm 4, Trusting God in Tight Places. Trusting God in Tight Places. Let me give you, um, let me give you an outline, then we'll read the text, and then we'll dive into this thing. Um, in Psalm 4, I'm going to give you, I think, six points. And I'll take about 45 minutes on each of them. So I hope you brought some popcorn tonight, guys. Number one, we have David's distress, and that's in verse one, David's distress. Secondly, we have David's confidence. That's also in verse one. Interesting, because he's distressed, but he's also confident in the Lord. That's all in verse one. Then we have, number three, we have David's opponents, his enemies. There in verses two and three, it seems like those guys are always hanging around. Then... We have, fourth, David's heart. We see what's going on in David's heart in the midst of all of this in verses four and five. And then our fifth point would be David's despairing friends. His despairing friends, his friends who have lost hope. That's in verse six. And then our sixth point would be David's deep peace and deep sleep. David's deep peace and deep sleep that would be verses 7 and 8. Let's read the psalm. Psalm 4, the superscription says, evening prayer of trust in God. Now, the previous psalm, Psalm 3, the superscription up there is morning prayer of trust in God. So you got your bookends. It's good to start today with the Lord. Your first thoughts are of him. And then he's got you. It's good to have your last thoughts in regard to him that he's got you. Psalm 139, one of the sections says, you have enclosed me behind and before. My whole life, you've got me. Uh, wherever we are today, you look at your past life and you see the hand of God. Uh, from, from womb to the tomb. You look backwards and you see his care. You see his activity. You see his grace. Even before you knew him. You have enclosed me behind. So when I look back, I see his hand all over my life. I got a future. I don't know what's in my future. I don't know how long my future is. I don't know how much time I've got. But you see, he knows. Because my times are in his hand. All of my times. That's Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hand. My breaths, I get X number of breaths. I get X amount of days. I get X amount of hours. And then Hebrews 10 says, it is appointed for a man once to die and then comes judgment. That's already set. But you see, he's got me. And each day he's got me. So it's wise when you get up in the morning, your first thoughts, you think of the Lord. I usually, as I roll out, I usually say, lead me today, Lord. Just lead me. And then as my knee collapses and I fall to the floor, <laughs> I say, help me. <laughs> Things happen when you get miles on your tires. Uh, and going to sleep. The last psalm that we looked at, he, he talked about, in the midst of his trouble, he was able to lay down and sleep in verse 5 of Psalm 3. You've also got sleep in this psalm. 
So it's an evening prayer of trust in the Lord. Let's read it. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me of my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, he's speaking now to leaders in the community. He's speaking to men of, uh, of influence. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? Why does he say that? Because he's got these men in high places that are criticizing him, that are spreading lies, that are spreading uh, false truth about him, fake news, if you will. They're trying to run him down and run down his character. Sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. The, the idea here is tremble with anger and do not sin. Meditate or speak in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Many people are worn out from the struggle. Many people, many who are on David's side, many who are uh, David's friends and are his supporters. Uh, he's the king. They love him. They follow him. But they're struggling because it's a difficult time and it's a difficult spot. And they're getting worn out. And they keep looking for the goodness of God. But it seems like it's not showing up. They're fatigued. They're worn out. They're tired. They're, uh, they're, they've become weary in well-doing. And they're losing hope. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Uh, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Uh, when the harvest comes in and we've got the grain and we've got the new wine, that's a good time. When the economy's doing well and we have all this abundance that comes in, that's a good time. But I've got more gladness in my heart even though I'm in distress than when that occurs. Eight, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. There it is again. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Interesting psalm. Um, David wrote roughly half of the psalms. 150 psalms. He's right at 73, 74, 75 psalms. There's a lot of biographical information that we have in David's life in other passages of scripture, we got a lot of information about David and the events of his life and the seasons of his life from the time he was a boy until he died as an old man. Bob Beale is a Christian advisor and counselor and consultant to Christian leaders. Uh, Bob Beale. B-O-B-B, -B, is how you spell Bob. Last name is B-I-E-H-L. I mentioned Bob before. Bob is not a well-known Bible teacher. He's not, he's not one of those guys that's in the spotlight. But if you talk to a Christian leader, they'll know who Bob Beal is. Bob's the kind of guy that's behind the scenes. And he has a ministry to Christian leaders He's got a very unique gift, and uh, he's been a tremendous help to me and to many of my friends. Bob has uh, written a book called Decade by Decade, and the subtitle is Life is Surprisingly Predictable. That's a good title. It's surprisingly predictable. And what he's done in this book is that he takes the decades of life, and he gives each decade a single word of focus to represent what you go through in that decade. It's an interesting, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Let, let me give you, he's got, 
He's got uh, 10 decades here, roughly. First one. And each of these words will begin with S. First decade, children under 10. The word is security. Security. Number two, second decade, teens. The word is self. Self. Third decade would be the 20s. The word is survival. How do I survive? What kind of work am I going to do? Do I go on? Do I go to that school? Do I graduate from that? Should I do this? How do I know? I, I've tried that. I don't like it. It's, you're trying to survive. You're trying to figure out how you're going to make it. You're, gonna, you're trying to figure out what you should do with your life. The fourth one are the 30s. The key word in the 30s is success. We want to make it. We want to achieve. We want to accomplish. We want, uh, we want to increase in, uh, in status. We want to increase in uh, position. We want to increase in, uh, in the bucks. We, we, we want to be successful. That's a big deal in the 30s. And you've got energy in the 30s, and you're working your tail off trying to be successful. By now, if you're in your 30s, you probably have a wife, you got some kids, and you're just, you're, you're going nonstop trying to be successful. In the 40s, he's got two words. The first one is significance. The next one is struggle. It's called midlife. Midlife means, midlife means you're half dead. That's, that's not from Bob Beale, that's from me. But it's kind of shocking how fast we get to midlife. Uh, you, 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 all of a sudden, you're 40. And that's a big deal. And we know guys have a lot to deal with when they hit midlife because you're not a young guy anymore and you can still play basketball but you got to stretch for two hours before you play basketball. When you were 20, you never stretched in your life. You just went out and played basketball. But you see, things are changing. And you've, perhaps you've chosen a career but maybe you went to, I remember a guy that I know pretty well and went to a very prominent law school and I remember him telling me in his 40s how much he hated being an attorney. But he was locked in, he felt. And the income and this and that and then, and I mean, he was just, and he was a pretty miserable guy. Now, this is why guys, you'll see guys suddenly change and guys who were, you know, in business They'll quit and they'll go coach high school football. Because what's happening is that you get in your 40s and you're at a different stage of life and suddenly you think, half my life's over. Do I want to keep doing this? Or do I want to make a radical change? And everybody's, everybody has different issues. But, but see, what you want to do, why would you make a change from a business career to being a high school football coach or whatever it is you're changing? Because you want your life to count. And you want to do what's important to you. And that's a good thing. And you want to do something in line with your gifts and with what God's put in your heart. That's good. That's good stuff. You just got to figure out how to do it and provide. So that means there's going to be struggle. There's a second word. This can uh, apply to our marriages. It can apply to our kids. We have kids we raise to know the Lord. And then suddenly you've got all kinds of conflict. And you've got just, I mean, it's, life's interesting, isn't it? And life is exhausting at times. Then in the 50s, he has the word stride, stride. And when you read what he's saying in the chapter, what he's saying is in the 40s and 50s, it's like you're running a race, but you're running it in deep mud. And it's, it's a struggle. And it's, it's, not, it's not that way for everybody, but for a lot of guys, it's, it's a race. It's hard. It's exhausting. It. But it's sort of like when you get into your 50s, it's sort of like you're running now on dry land. And you've kind of figured out some things about yourself, what you're good at, what you're not good at. What, and, and so you're running with a good stride. You see, you've learned some things. 
uh, in the 60s, it's the word strategic. Why would it be the word strategic in your 60s? Because you're in your 60s. And you got more years behind you than you have in front of you when you're in your 60s. So what you really want to do in your 60s, you want to be strategic. Uh, the 60s and 70s are the two most, can be the two most productive decades in a man's life because of what you learned getting there. Now, you don't have some of the stuff you used to have, but you got some stuff that you didn't have when you were young. Wisdom, that's exactly right. I look back on my 20s in my first church. I shot a video for them a couple of years ago, right up here on the stage after a Bible study, because they were having that anniversary that next Sunday. I couldn't be there. 50th anniversary. I had been their pastor 40 years prior. Um, They'd done all right for 10 years, then it dropped, and they were in a real tough place, and had about 50 people, 55. They were desperate. They called me. I'm just some kid out of seminary. And I said on the video, I look back on those years, and uh, two words come to my mind. Young and stupid. (laughs) And I really mean that. Here's a profound thought. Everybody starts out young. I worked on that for weeks. Everybody starts out young. But the problem is you don't have wisdom because you don't have any experience and you haven't gotten hit in the chops yet. And you haven't been hurt. And you haven't failed. And you haven't... uh, you have a tendency to kind of think you can do whatever you need to do to pull it off, and you can't. But see, in your 60s, you got enough time, you've accumulated some wisdom. You've taken some shots in the chops, you've learned some hard lessons, you've had your heart broken, you've had some disappointments, but, but you've learned a whole bunch of stuff. And now, through all of that, You've got some wisdom because you've been afflicted. The 70s, the word is secession. Secession. Uh, that's why in your 70s, it's a real good idea to have a, uh, a will. It's a real good idea to have a, an estate plan. It's just a really good idea because you don't know how much time you've got. And when you drop, um, someone's got to take over. And so just from a leadership standpoint, you think ahead and you get some things in place just for the benefit of everybody involved when you're not here. Uh, That implies to other things, a family business. It applies to uh, relationships. It applies to, it's a whole lot of things. But in your 70s, you're aware, I won't be here forever. And you will not be here forever. So you think about these things in a way that you never thought about them before. In the 80s, the word is slippery. <laughs> slippery. I think, that's, uh, I, I think that's very insightful because literally in your 80s, the word is slippery. Uh, you fall in your 80s. Uh, things you never thought twice about, you think twice about. You... You go online at Amazon and compare walkers. (laughs) You do. Why? Because you're 80. Because when the legs go, you're in a whole different spot. And you never had to think about that before, but now you've got to think about it. Uh, The word for the 90s is sleep. Because you're preparing to go to sleep with Jesus. You're preparing for the end of the earthly trail and 
to go to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus if he's your savior and if you've trusted in him alone for your salvation. Uh, it's far better, it's far better, Paul said, but that could come at any time. That's, that's our, that's this, this is the decades of our lives. Now, as we go through life, we're men, therefore we're leaders. God's called his men to lead in the family. God's called his men to lead in the church. Uh, different kinds of leaders that God has. But if you're a man, God's given you leadership responsibilities. Uh, Bob has a section. It's very good. He simply calls it avoiding the three enemies of leadership. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you're a father, you're a leader. Wherever you are in life, you've got somebody watching you. That means you're a leader. Uh, some have a lot of people watching them, following them. Others, a few. But it doesn't matter, you're still a leader. I'll quote him here. He says, avoiding the three enemies of leadership. There are three enemies of leadership you want to avoid in all phases, in all decades of your life. The three enemies of leadership are fog, fatigue, and flirtations. Fog, fatigue, and flirtations. Beale says, fog is the number one enemy of leadership. And then he asks if you're familiar with a sports car called a Bugatti. The thing about a Bugatti is um, they cost a few million bucks. They are they'll go 245 miles an hour on the Autobahn. They're, they're, they're not a race car, they are street legal. Uh, and he mentions here that they're coming out with a four-door sedan if you're a family guy. Just something you might wanna check, see what the lease payment would be on a... Uh, kind of fun to drive a Bugatti on the Autobahn where there are no speed limits, and you pass up the Porsches and the Lamborghinis and wave at them because they can only go about 160. But when you go over a hill and descend into a valley and you see that patch of fog, you better take your foot off that accelerator. And there's always someone, Bob says, that'll yell out, well, speed up. Well, that's the last thing you want to do. The last thing you want to do in dense fog is speed up. When we first moved to the San Francisco Peninsula, we lived in an area right next to San Francisco called Westlake, right on the ocean. From when, when there wasn't fog, and that was in what was called the fog belt, from our front yard, we could see down several miles and see the Pacific. We could see the ships going into the Golden Gate. Um, anyway, but it was, a, it was the fog belt. And our church was south, and when we'd go to church on Wednesday nights and on Sunday, uh, probably eight, nine months out of the year, we'd be in the fog. I had a paper out in the morning. Uh, Pete Seeger used to have a song called Little Boxes, and it was about people who live in little boxes, and they all look just the same. The, the homes in Westlake, in Daly City, all look just the same because they were all built by the same builder, and there are thousands of them. Very small lots, very small, very constricted. From the, from the street to the front yard to the steps, because they were all two-story, and you would enter on the second floor. From the street to the stairs with grass, it might be eight to nine yards. That was it. I mean, you could cut the grass in about three sweeps. And I would get up at four and do my San Francisco Chronicle paper route. And most mornings, the fog was so thick, as I was on the sidewalk, I could not see the house. I'm not exaggerating. We'd drive down the peninsula to go to church, and we'd drive down through Pacifica and uh, San Bruno, and that fog, it would get so thick, you could not see the white line on skyline. You could not see it. That's how thick the fog would get. That was common. 
that there was a spot in San Bruno. And suddenly, it, it was just crazy. Suddenly, you'd come through the fog and it would be sunshine. And there's a church right on that corner. And that church is still there today. And it's just uncanny how that works. But there is nothing more dangerous than driving in heavy, dense fog. You absolutely cannot see where you're going. Fog happens to us as leaders, Beale says. He says, it doesn't matter how much mental horsepower you've got in that Bugatti brain of yours. If your head is in a fog, you may not be going over a mile or two an hour, but you're still feeling the danger of life. Likely we both, uh, the reader and, and the writer, he says, likely both of us have had years where the entire year felt like we didn't get anywhere. We're still where we were when we started the year. Why is that? It's because our heads are in a fog. Life isn't clear. Life is confusing. Life goes slow. Uh, your, your direction isn't clear. We all have seasons like that. It's not clear to me. So what do you do? You keep plotting. You keep plotting, doing the same thing. But you don't feel productive. The other thing about fog is that not only can you not go fast, but you're burning up your fuel as you drive. You get exhausted at the end of the day, Beagle says, and you feel like you didn't do anything. That's mental fog. The next enemy, fatigue is the second enemy of leadership. Fog always results in fatigue. When the path isn't clear, you get fatigued because you're having to spend so much emotional energy trying to figure out the path and stay on the path, it absolutely wears you out. All your emotional energy is gone just trying to keep going in the right direction. It, you constantly feel exhausted. Uh, maybe you didn't do much, but you're exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, fatigue also, Beale says, makes us introspective and negative. Projects which seem easy when we're rested seem impossible when we're exhausted. Third enemy. And there's a reason I'm spending this much time on this. Flirtations are the third enemy of leadership. Flirtations. Fog always leads to fatigue, Beale says. Fatigue always leads to flirtations. I'm not just talking about sexual flirtations, although those may be included. I'm talking about flirting with ideas which, with, with which you should not be flirting. Flirting with the ideas of suicide or flirting with the idea of leaving a profession that you really would like to do for the rest of your life. To take a job in that you to take a job that you'll be miserable in for the next three years. But the money's so great, I'll go ahead and take it and be miserable. Really? You you you're sure you want to do that? There are guys in this room thinking about this right now. Buell says, I'm talking about making unwise decisions just to get out of the fatigue and out of the fog. Cause us to flirt with things that we shouldn't be flirting with. So the idea seems to be, as you're walking through life, keep your head clear of the fog, the fatigue, and the flirtations. Let me give you a great verse before we go to Psalm 4. Psalm 1611. David said, you will make known to me the path of life. It's a promise. God will make it clear to you the direction that he wants you to go. Now, there are times, I grant you, when he takes us through a season where we are distressed and where we are unclear and where we're having to slow down dramatically and we really want to go fast through life because we're 30 and we got to be successful and we're in our 40s and we got to be significant. And we want to hit our stride in our 50s. And, and see, the thing is, we want to move along. We don't want to be encumbered. We don't want to be delayed. We don't want to take a detour. We want to move. Well, God has said, I will make known to you the path of life. But he'll do it in his way and in his time. 
Someone has said that God is free to interrupt your plans at any time. He's God. Well, I don't want him to interrupt my plans. Yeah, see, but the problem with that is his plan's better. Proverbs 16 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Aren't you glad that God has directed your steps as you look back over your life? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And he interrupted it. He blocked it. Uh, he caused it to fail, whatever. And he has redirected you. And now you say, thank you, Lord. Psalm 16 also says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. David got himself in trouble because of flirtations. And in Psalm 32, after David has repented for seven verses, then God says to David, I mean, he has repented his guts out before the Lord. The Lord says to David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or the mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in place. Even after we mess up, even after we sin, even after we willfully walk away from the Lord and go our own way and try to do our own thing and get our own agenda in place and maybe take moral shortcuts and all these things that we've all done, when we come to him in brokenness and repentance, there is forgiveness with thee. And what he does is he restores us and now he assures us, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. That's a promise from God. So how does Psalm 4 fit into this? Psalm 4, David is in distress. And I, I am going to fly over this. We, we can't stop and spend a lot of time on each section. But the outline I gave you, our first point, simply was David's distress. Let's read verse 1 again. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. The word distress here has the idea of being hemmed in. It has the idea of being closed in, uh, of being squeezed by your circumstances. It has the idea of being squeezed in and hemmed in to such a degree that you can't get out. There's no possible way of escape. There's no, there's no exit sign in your life to find relief. You are hemmed in in a distressful situation. You're in a tight place. Uh, one commentator has, has translated it this way. In, in tight places, it, it, the New American Standard reads, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. One commentator put it this way. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. In tight places, you have made space for me. I'm in this, I'm in this deep, hemmed-in space. I can hardly breathe. But you have given me breathing room. You have given me relief. You have given me a way out. The thing about the Lord is he's the God who makes a way where there is no way. And as you go through the decades of life with the Lord, from time to time, he will take you into circumstances and situations under his providence that are designed to teach deep lessons and hard lessons that we need for the next chapter and for the next decade that you're facing. And you're hemmed in and you're locked in. It's like God will take you and put you in a gigantic vice and pull it and pull it and pull it. And you can hardly catch your breath and, and you're getting crushed and, and you're not sure you're going to survive and you're not sure you can breathe. And see, that's, this is exactly where David is in Psalm 4. But we need to notice that he refers to it in the past tense. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. What you kind of got here, and, and some commentators, and they, got a, they have a pretty good case 
that he's still referring to the situation in Psalm 3 that we looked at last week where his son Absalom tried to pull a coup and take him off the throne. And um, his son Absalom worked for about four years getting his political action committees together and, you know, going to all the caucuses and talking to people and, yeah, it's too bad my dad doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. Well, man, if I was up there, I'd sure pay attention. I mean, he's just working the crowds. And he gets other leaders involved, not just the people, but it's grassroots. And, he, and David didn't have a clue because David's in Jerusalem and he's trying to run the kingdom. And here his son is undercutting him and he almost pulled it off. But the Lord frustrated the plans of Absalom and David was put back on the throne. Perhaps four is tied into three circumstantially. What do you do when you're in that vice? Well, you're in distress. You can hardly breathe. You can hardly move. In the same verse, verse 1, you not only have David's distress, but our second point in the outline was you have David's confidence. Verse 1, answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness. Now, who is this guy again? Oh, he's the guy. He's the guy that committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband put on the front lines and said, pull back the guys so he'll be killed. So here's this adulterer. Here is this um, murderer who is the king of Israel. And he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You know why he says, oh God, of my righteousness? Because he's in a covenant with the living God. How, how do you get this kind of confidence? His confidence is in the character of God. And th this is what happens as you walk through the decades of life with Christ. The more you walk with Christ through life and through the valleys and through the mountaintops, but you go through hard things you never expected to go through, and you wonder, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it through. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is even though I go under it, even though I avoid it, even though I go over it, even though I, you know, take a detour 40 miles around. It doesn't say, even though I walk through the valley of literally deep darkness, I'll fear no evil. Why not? For you are with me. He's with you. That's how you get through it. And what you learn as you go through these experiences in life, you look back when you came to the Lord and what the Lord did for you and how he brought you to know himself. And then there was some kind of crisis and then there was relative peace for a while. And then there was another crisis. And then you go back and you go, oh man, I remember, oh my gosh, I forgot about that one. And then, you know, it's good to go back and look. Someone said you, could, you can see a lot by looking. You can see a lot of the grace of God in your life just by looking at what he's done. How he sustained you, how he made a way. How he got you through that valley. You thought there's no way on earth you were getting through that. But he got you through it. You were in a tight space. He made a way where there was no way. But see, the more you do that, the more you see the faithfulness of God, if you count them up, yeah, in my life, God's been faithful to me 1,119 times. If you've been through it 1,119 times and God's been faithful 1,119 times, he's going to be faithful 1,120 times. And before he ever does a thing, you know he's going to do it. You know it. You know it because you know his character. He can be trusted He's just, he, he, he builds your muscle of faith and trust in him. And things that would throw you and th things that would rack you in knots, they don't, it's not like that anymore. It doesn't mean hard things don't come. Don't mean, it doesn't mean there aren't any challenges or things that are difficult and hard. There, there are. But you see, you built some muscle that you didn't used to have. That's how you get the confidence. The confidence is in God's character. 
Third, in this psalm, you've got David's opponents, his adversaries. Um, so God had delivered him from a tight place. It could have been, if it was the Absalom situation, that was huge. But when God delivers us, it doesn't mean our life is pain-free, and it doesn't mean that all of our difficulties and challenges go away. Because even when God delivers us from a major situation, there's still a mop-up operation. You've always got your critics. You've always got your slanderers. You've always got those who oppose you and oppose what God's doing in your life. It's just the way that it is. So David says in verse 2, O sons of men, and again, that would be a term for the leaders. Uh, in the context of Absalom, the leaders that went along with Absalom, that were influenced, that turned from David, and they're still around, and they don't like David, and they don't like the fact that David is king, and they don't like what David is doing, and they are spreading lies and saying things that are untrue. They're doing fake news on David because they just don't want him in that position as king. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? God's the one who has made me king. That honor is from him, and you despise it. How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? How long will you keep spreading lies about me? These are slanderers, you see. And then, and see, their problem, here's the deal. Their problem, really, ultimately, is not with David. Their problem is with God. They don't like what God has done because they have their own agenda which would increase their power and their influence and their, they want that lofty position. And David has it and God's put him in that position. So ultimately what they're doing is not fighting David, they're fighting the Lord. Uh, Psalm 75, not, promotion comes not from the east nor from the west nor from the desert, but promotion comes from the Lord. As you go through life and you go through the decades of life, Whatever position you're in, God has given you that position. You have a sphere of influence. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Not as unto men, but as unto Christ, as the Lord Christ whom you serve. So whatever your position is, uh, you, you, really you're serving in that position, in that slot, at the, at, at, at the Lord's pleasure. And sometimes maybe you've been in a certain position, or you've been here or there for a while, and... Uh, I remember years and years and years ago talking to a guy who was laid off by a company that was famous for not ever laying anybody off. And he had just been laid off. I mean, he, he was in a state of absolute shock because this was the company that had a history and it was part of their creed that they would not lay anybody off. And then the economy went south and suddenly... Things change, and he and some others got laid off. And he had a pretty prominent position. And I remember him telling me, he said, I, I'm really having trouble with this because I had a financial plan that was all set up that I would, I would be here, I think he said, another six years, and then I'm, and then I'm set for life. Nothing wrong with a financial plan. It's probably a very tight, very good plan. He probably had a binder that was color-coded and all the things and everything, you know, the problem is, is that Jesus is his Lord. And the problem is, is that nothing wrong with a financial plan. God just doesn't want us trusting in financial plans. God wants us trusting in him. He got laid off. He was, I mean, he was stunned. He was, the, the, guy, the poor guy was, sh I mean, he was shook to the core. And at a certain point, he was so distraught, I said to him, I said, you realize, don't you, that ultimately it was the Lord who laid you off. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, the Lord laid you off. He said, the Lord laid me off. I said, yeah. He's the Lord. He's the master of your life. He's the master of everything. All authority, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So he's the authority in that company. 
He's the authority in this nation. He's the authority over the world and over the universe and the solar systems and the Milky Way. And he's, he's the authority. He owns it. He runs it. He created it. He sustains it. And ultimately, he said, how could he lay me off? I said, who laid you off? I mean, who was it? He said, well, it was this team of executives. I said, are they above you? He goes, yeah. I said, okay. Well, he's above them. Once again, they're high, but he's most high. Psalm 57, 2. I will cry to God most high. I will cry to God most high. Most high. <laughs> yeah, the guys who laid him off were above him, and they laid him off. And then I mentioned to him Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Hey, those guys could have unanimously voted to lay you off, but if the Lord wanted you there another six years, you'd still be there. Because he turns their hearts. He calls the shots. They don't even have to know him, and he still calls the shots. And he was, he thought I was crazy. He just needed, he had a Bible. He just needed to start reading it. He needed to get down some facts about God. Because when you get down in your heart certain facts about God, now I'm not saying that those executives, that HR committee, I'm not saying they don't have a will. They're, they're, they do. They're free moral agents. But God's will is supreme. And God inclines. It's interesting you read through the scripture how often he will put a spirit within someone or he will incline them or he will, he turns hearts, he turns hearts, he turns hearts. That's what he does. He's God. They're still responsible for their choices and all that. You say, how does that work out? I don't know. But I will tell you this, it's not unjust because there is no injustice with God. I, I cannot comprehend that, so I don't spend much time trying to comprehend it. I just know it's true. So what that gives me is a great confidence that whatever occurs in my life that I didn't see coming, that ultimately God was behind it and God was in charge of it. And once again, when you walked with him long enough and you've had some setbacks and you've been blindsided and all that and you're stunned and you're shocked and you go, oh no, this is the end. And then you see later how he's just setting you up for greater favor and greater blessing. This is where we're kind of overlapping with last week. They don't like David, they're against David, but he's the anointed that God put in that position. So here's what I'm saying to you. Wherever you are in life, whatever position God's given to you, you're serving him and he's placed you there. He will sustain you for as long as he wants you there. And when, and, and you don't know his time frame, you don't know, so be careful about this six year plan or I'm gonna do that. I mean, you know, that's okay, do it, but just do it in pencil. Don't get the expensive inks. You know, because you're going to need to erase this at some point. And so when there's a setback and you're, planning, and you're stunned, and that's all right, you're human, you never saw it coming, kind of shocks you, kind of knocks your feet out from under you. And when you get your feet back after the initial shock and you kind of get your wheels under you again, you take a step back and you say, hmm, oh, hmm. Okay, okay, Lord. My times are in your hand. I'm with you. I'm in. The Lord is my shepherd. But let's just see what you got next. And, and, and you see, that's where the confidence comes from. Even in the midst of your enemies, you, you, uh, you're protected. You're protected. Uh, what does that verse say? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. I'm his son. He set me apart. He's for you. He'll protect you. Doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. They will happen. But he'll use the bad and ultimately turn it for your good. But he will protect you in situations. And sometimes you'll know, I'm going to get a promotion. Not only do you not get the promotion, you'll get fired. That's probably a protection. Can you see it at the time? No. Very well could be a protection. You won't see it till later. The, 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 the idea here in, 
in Psalm 4, know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The idea of set apart, it's what happened in Egypt when God sent the plagues. Do you remember that? The, uh, the children of Israel lived in a, uh, a planned gated community called Goshen. I'm kind of making this up now. But they lived in a place called Goshen. So the Egyptians, you know, they're in regular Egypt. But they live in Goshen. And when the plague started coming, like when the darkness came down, it was dark in Egypt. It wasn't dark in Goshen. If you were on the border of Egypt and Goshen, and you were trying to read your watch, and it wasn't an illuminated dial, you couldn't see it in Egypt. But if the border's right there, all you had to do was... <laughs> and it's broad daylight. You see? That's how I've set you apart. The flies come down here. They're not coming down here. Now, that's our God. He sets apart the godly man. Well, I'm not godly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. We're sinners. But you're in Jesus. You've been adopted into the family. And he sustains and he protects and he provides and he makes a way. It's what he does. It's who he is. Through all the decades of life, through the fog, through the fatigue, when I can't do what I used to be able to do, through the flirtations, when I get stupid and I forget what I should be doing, he's still my Lord, he's still my Savior. Let's look at David's heart, verses uh, four and five. What he's talking about here is anger. Because when we have those people that are against us and, and fight us and plague us and say things about us that are not true, that's, that's hard and we get angry. We, we, we get angry when, when we say in our heart, that's not right. There's a godly kind of anger and there's an ungodly kind of anger. So what we have here in verse four, and I'm gonna use the notation of the New American Standard here, tremble with anger and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed or speak in your heart upon your bed and be still. Uh, this, this corresponds with what Paul said in Ephesians 4.26 about anger. You gotta be careful with anger. There's a right kind and there's a wrong kind. A anger is kinda like nitroglycerin. You wanna be really careful with, with anger because it can have devastating effects. There's a right kind, but there is, there is a wrong kind. So in Ephesians 4.26, Referring to this passage back in Psalm 4, Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't go to sleep trembling with anger and rage towards someone and wanting vengeance. It's not healthy. It's not good. James 1 says, let everyone be, watch this. This is really counterintuitive for us. Let everyone be quick to hear. I'm not quick to hear. I'm quick to anger. And I'm also quick to speak when I'm angry. So James says, let everyone be quick to hear. Slow speak slow to anger I mean that, that's just Psalm 4 stated a little differently tremble with anger and do not sin meditate or speak in your heart upon your bed and be still don't talk I think you've got this, you know, scripture interprets scripture. Um, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British expositor who died in 1981, and we'll see this in a minute. He said, we've got to learn as Christians not to listen to ourselves, but to talk to ourselves. To talk to yourself. As you're going to sleep and someone's done something and you're shaking, you're just, you're just, how could they do that? How could they say those things? Just, okay. You're going to have to talk to yourself. Talk what? You're going to have to talk truth. Because this could really, this could get worse than it is. You need discernment from God. In these situations where we're angry and we have good cause to be angry, we've got to be careful. Verse 6. This has to do with David's friends who are despairing because there's still a mop-up operation and there's still some opposition and there's still being lies that are being said and, and they're getting tired of it and they're getting worn out by the lies and the deception and the fraud and all this stuff. Amazing how relevant the Bible is. Is it not? I'm not making this stuff up. Verse six, many are saying, this would be David's friends, who will show us any good? Yeah, the Lord delivered you from David in the tight place and all that, but there's still this mop-up. There's still these lies. There's deception. There's this fake news and all, and they're worn out. And sometimes we get, as believers, we get weary and well-doing. We're just worn out. We get fatigued. We get fatigued. And we're foggy. And we're just trying to hang on. And we just like some relief. And we're wondering, we're wondering to ourselves, Lord, when are you going to give me a break? When are, you do, when are you going to do something good for me? I'm just tired of this. I'm tired of dealing with this. What's happened is they have, they have lost hope. Um, this is back to Martin Lloyd-Jones' point, that we have to learn to talk to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. Um, in Psalm 42 and 43, three different verses, you'll read this. Why? Are you in despair, O my soul? When you're about out of hope, you're verging on despair, right? God hasn't come through. I'm still dealing with this. I'm worn out. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm foggy. I'm, uh, I'm fatigued. You know, I can't even think straight. I'm just worn out. I'm just shot. I'm not productive. I'm not getting anything done. This is sapping everything I got. Okay. Why are you in despair? Watch this. O my soul. He's talking to himself. You've seen the movies where a guy is with his friends and there's a panic situation, a tough situation, a guy kind of panic, he, he goes crazy and he starts, you know, and one of the guys will grab him by the shirt, put him up against the wall and slap him in the face about five times. And the guy will go, oh, oh, thanks. Oh, man, thanks, I needed that. Sometimes you've got to do that to yourself as a Christian. Hey, Put yourself up against the wall and say, why are you in despair? Next verse. He's still talking to himself. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why are you in despair? Why are you verging in hopelessness? And why are you cast down within me? The Lord knows why. He gets you. He's, he... I love the Lord because he understands my thought from afar, the psalmist says. That's why David, he's still got stuff. He's still got junk. But he says in verse 7, he says, you have put gladness in my heart. I'm still dealing with stuff, but I've still got joy in my heart. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That's one of the toughest verses for me to quote. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I make a conscious effort when things go south. Even before I go to bed at, go to bed at night, I'll walk outside. And Mary's already probably in bed, and I'll walk outside, and there's nobody around, and I'll just say, Lord, hey, look at the stars. I said, you named them all. You own them. You run them. That's strength. 
I thank you that I know you. I thank you that you called me. I thank you that I'm redeemed. I thank you that you've made promises. And so, Lord, that gives me joy in the midst of this. And I, I don't know how it's going to sort, and it troubles me, but, Lord, <laughs> I don't know anybody more blessed than me. I walk in the house. And I do verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. We should have taken your blood pressure reading before we started. And then we could take it now. And everybody would have a better score than when we walked in. Because we've looked at the facts about God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness through the decades of life, through the chapters of life, through the seasons. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. We trust in you, O Lord. Put courage into the hearts of men tonight. I'm sure there are guys that haven't slept well for days, maybe weeks. I pray tonight as they ponder your truth they will be able to lie down in peace and sleep deeply. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.